Please take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Luke 19. Finishing our time in Luke 19 this evening. Verses 28 to 48, we have a, a bit of ground to cover this evening. Title of the message, If Thou Hadst Known. Jesus has finished giving a parable regarding the kingdom to those disciples in Jericho who thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Recall we talked about last time we were together. This parable turned their attention away from the return of their Lord proper and toward the occupation while he was coming and toward what to do while they were waiting for their Lord to return. The point is that Jesus' return is in the Father's hand and thoughts about when Jesus returns are only beneficial to the degree to which they compel us to make every day and every moment count. To make every day and every moment worthwhile while we're waiting for His return. That's why the Bible teaches of the Lord's return. That's why we learn what we learn. It, it finishes the story. It helps us understand the fullness of God's plan, of His justice, all these things. We'll talk about that in our Revelation series in the morning as we walk through it. But... So much of the preaching and teaching in the Gospels on the Lord's return is meant to compel us into action today. And today we're going to contrast two groups. We talked last week specifically about how important it was that Jesus give that parable and be speaking about the nature of the kingdom because of, really, because of today. Because of the things that we're going to read about today. And we're going to see two groups contrasted. One group is small. They're passionate. They love their Lord's coming. The other group is large, determined, and spurned their Lord's coming. And through this contrast, I hope to make unto you an appeal. An, an appeal regarding our, our own condition of faith. An appeal that won't be necessarily brand new to us uh, as we've walked through Luke. Uh, it's going to rehash many of the, the things we've talked about already in many ways. But perhaps in a little bit of a different perspective. Where we stand, where others stand, and where others stand because of us. So we are in the text in verse 28. We read in verses 28 and 29. And when he had thus spoken, speaking of the parable we talked of last week, when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. So Jesus leaves Jericho and he continued on his way to Jerusalem. And as he does so, the Bible says he passes through Bethphage and Bethany. Now, Bethany was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So Jesus leaves Jericho. And remember, we mentioned that, of course, in Jericho, uh, several weeks ago, we talked about on the outskirts of Jericho, the blind man, right? And then inside Jericho, Zacchaeus. And then still inside Jericho last week, that parable of the man, of the, the nobleman who went to receive for himself a kingdom. Now he's coming out of Jericho and the Jericho road, as it ascends to Jerusalem, the Jericho road goes through Bethany. So at that time, Jesus ended up in Bethany in the home of Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus, Lazarus, who Jesus had risen from the dead, as recorded in John 11. Now it is at this time, and we don't have this recorded in Luke, but it is at this time, just days before Jesus' death, that in John chapter 12, Mary anoints Jesus' feet 
with ointment. Now, this is the second anointing. The first anointing we read about in Luke 7, if you recall. Way back in Luke 7, we read about the anointing of a woman of Jesus, and that woman was a woman of ill repute. She was a harlot, uh, most likely. She was a sinner, the text says. And Simon the Pharisee was, was, was upset at that, and, and we get that whole account. But we made it very clear when we were there, and we defended the fact that that was not Mary. That was not the Mary that we read about here and that that was a different woman and that, that this account of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus is an entirely separate account and we talked about all the reasons why that was. I'm not going to rehash those, uh, but if you want to know all of the differences between those two passages and why we know that they are two entirely different accounts, uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to that message in Luke 7. So they're not the same events, but, but Jesus is anointed by Mary here and when Judas and the disciples are upset and Judas says, uh, that's a lot of money she just poured on you, Jesus, <laughs> because he held the money and, and whatnot. Uh, Jesus says, she was anointing me unto my burial. And uh, he, he commended her for that work just six days prior to Passover. So Jesus then continues on his way, coming to Bethphage and the Mount of Olives, which was just across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. Uh, if you ever see the pictures of pictures from the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem or Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, there's just a little, there's kind of a, a, a small valley in between them and they are very close to each other. And from the top of the Mount of Olives, you can see a, a wonderful panorama, as it were, of Jerusalem. Of course, right now you can see the, the, the temple wall, the, the Dome of the Rock there and all of those things. Uh, you can imagine that when the temple was up, you could just see the temple in its beauty and magnificence and the wall and all of those things there as you would come down um, from the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is there, the Bible tells us, and he commissions his two disciples. The Bible does not tell us which two. And our Lord says this in verses 31 and 32. Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. Now it's quite possible the village over against where they were was actually the village of Bethphage itself. Bethphage is a city that's never mentioned in the Old Testament. So it's mentioned here, but we really don't have any other insight into what Bethphage was. The city, the, the name Bethphage literally means house of figs. House of Figs, uh, likely because it was surrounded by fig orchards. The village quite possibly only existed to house the people that worked in the orchards. Uh, so it may not have actually been a, an official city as much as it was almost like a little encampment for the people that lived there because they worked in the orchards and such. That's just kind of some, um, uh, some speculation. However, we do know this, that historically uh, the rabbis considered Bethphage officially a part of Jerusalem. So it was not a grand city in and of itself. It was legally, officially a part of Jerusalem. So Jesus tells his two disciples to enter into whatever village it was that they were to enter into, and there they would find a colt tied. In this case, the colt was a young, it wasn't a young male horse, it was a young male donkey. And upon this donkey, the Bible says, no man 
had ever ridden, and they were to loose him and they were to bring him to Jesus. He furthermore instructed these two disciples that if any man were to ask them why they were loosing the colt and just taking this colt that did not belong to them, um, that they were to reply that it was because the Lord had need of him. And, and this statement of the Lord would be understood to mean that there was a divine purpose for this donkey. The Lord has need of him. There's a divine purpose and we're taking him for the sake of the Lord. And indeed, there was a divine purpose in this. The necessity of a donkey was not just random in its application, as we'll see in just a few moments. So we continue in verses 32 through 34. And the text tells us this. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, the Lord hath need of him. So the two disciples go into the village. They find the donkey as Jesus had said. They begin to loose the colt and the owners naturally would ask them, what are you doing, right? So you're, you, own, you own this colt, right? And somebody comes up and they just begin to loose your colt and to take your colt. Uh, you'd naturally want to know what, what, what's going on here. So they ask, why are you loosing the colt? And the, the disciples respond as they were told to in faith. It may have been a little awkward, but they looked and they responded simply, the Lord has need of him. Now for the owners who, uh, as I mentioned, seeming, are, are watching this seemingly random act of two men loosing their colt without intrigue, without deceit. You know, these men didn't pop out of a bush, grab the colt and run, right? Uh, they did not come up with their faces covered and uh, threaten the owners and take the colt. This was not a, you know, this was, this was not a, a hold up. This was just them coming up and, and seemingly almost nonchalantly untying this colt that did not belong to them and walking this colt away. Uh, and, and so this, is, this would be a very curious event uh, for them, I'm sure, and perhaps that's why the interaction went as it did, because these guys aren't trying to be deceptive here. They're just coming up and they're taking my colt. Um, almost as if they had every right to do so, and indeed they felt they did uh, by the sanction of the Lord. So the owners ask why, and they're told, because the Lord has need of him. It becomes apparent very quickly that the disciples knew full well why the Lord had need of him. So when they're saying this, the Lord has need of this donkey, they knew that there was no controversy in taking the colt because they knew what was about to happen here. Jesus knew, the disciples knew, and it's very possible that the owners as well very quickly understood what was happening here. The activities surrounding this go back to a prophecy that we find in the book of Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So Zechariah was a prophet to the remnant. The remnant that had returned from Babylon that were coming back to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, and to get Israel back up and running, as it were, after the Babylonian captivity. They were let 
they were allowed to go back by Cyrus after the Medo-Persian Empire had conquered Babylon. Uh, and Cyrus let them go back after the 70 years as God had prophesied uh, through, through the prophet Jeremiah. And now they're back in the land. And Zechariah was one of the prophets that God had commissioned along with Haggai in the land to the remnant. Uh, Zechariah was a Levite who had been called in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah to prophesy to the nation specifically regarding the rebuilding of the temple in the second year of the reign of King Darius uh, over uh, the areas of, of Persia. He prophesied, as I mentioned, along with Haggai, calling upon the people to build the temple. When the people got there, they immediately began the building of the temple, but very quickly they kind of got distracted. They started living their lives, doing their thing, farming, building their own homes. The people of the land were resisting them. The Samaritans were resisting them. They'd try to build the walls in, in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans would come, and they'd burn them down, and they'd knock them down. And that's why Nehemiah was commissioned to go, because he, he, he kept hearing. He, he got a report from his brother that, again, the walls of Jerusalem had been burnt and, and, and torn to the ground. They just couldn't get these walls built because of the people of the land. And so this was a time of great discouragement. And Zechariah and Haggai were commissioned by God to, to, to they were raised up to compel the people. Build this temple. Get this work done. In the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, Zechariah's prophecy centered around the coming king. There's a king coming and we need to have a temple ready for him, was the idea calling upon the people to prepare themselves for his arrival by rebuilding the temple unto which he could arrive. Zechariah was a man of tremendous passion and his visions are really some of the most expressive visions in the Bible. In Zechariah 9, the prophet had just laid out what, what in prophecy we call a burden, the burden for the cities surrounding Judah. A, a prophetic burden was a cry of judgment against a people. It was uh, called such because indeed it represented a very heavy weight upon the heart of God and upon the heart of the prophet as he had to deliver this judgment. Uh, whether the burden, the burden would oftentimes be given to the nations that had, had um, surrounded Israel and who had fought against Israel. Every once in a while, the burden is of the burden toward Israel or toward Judah. Damascus, Gaza, Ashkelon, Tyre and Sidon, Ekron, all the enemies of God would be judged was what this burden of Zechariah was to, 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 to proclaim. And it is in the midst of this burden of the prophet that we read the words that the king would come. The burdens of the prophets often not only represented judgment upon those who had fought against Israel, but it often represented hope for the people of God as well, who had suffered under the affliction of so many. And that's the connection here, that upon the arrival of the king, Justice would prevail. So in Zechariah 9 9, as Zechariah proclaims the king coming to his temple, coming into the city, coming on this foal of an ass, the colt, we, we, we see this promise that a king was coming. And it was intended to exhort the people to get this temple built. And Zechariah, in a style filled with hope and anticipation, announces how they would know their king. How will you know when your king has come? The king of justice, the king of salvation, their Messiah, God's anointed. He would come riding on Anassas' colt. That's how you would know when your king had arrived. 
The promise is of a young donkey, untrained, unaccustomed to carrying a person. This would be the least warlike animal possible, right? Not only is he a donkey, which is not very good for war, right? You've never seen a man ride a donkey into battle. In, 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 and you, you don't read of it in books. You don't see it in movies. It doesn't happen. But, but not only that, because donkeys are stubborn, right? So, so you're not going to ride a donkey into battle. But not only that, but if it's, an, if it's a donkey that's never had anyone riding on it, you don't take something that's never been trained into battle. Right? Even a horse. You don't take an unbroken horse and jump on him and go fight a war with him. It does not work that way. It can't work that way. And so it is not a, a, a symbol of war. But let me tell you what the donkey is a symbol of as we see it in Scripture. It's a symbol of a king who has already conquered. It is a symbol of a judge and a conqueror. It was an animal that was symbolic of peacetime after war. Of influence and power. To this end, we find most specifically in the book of Judges, the donkey used to show men of influence, of prosperity among certain families. So we read about this, uh, um, about, about this with, with relation to Deborah and Barak. Uh, in Judges chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, the Bible says, My heart is toward the governors of Israel that offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless ye the Lord. Speak, ye that ride on white asses, ye that sit in judgment and walk by the way. So he says, speak those of you who are influential, those of you who are powerful, those of you who sit in judgment. And the symbol of those that sat in judgment was that they rode on white asses. This was a symbol of their authority. This was a symbol of their, their, their place in society. They that are delivered from the noise of archers in the place of drawing of water, time of peace, there shall they rehearse the righteous acts of the Lord, even the righteous acts towards the inhabitants of his villages in Israel. Then shall the people of the Lord go down to the gates. So we see this idea. It's peacetime. The war is over. There are judges. They are, and they are riding on white asses, right? We also see it among the description of the judge Jair. In Judges chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and judged Israel twenty and two years, and he had thirty sons, here it is, that rode on thirty ass colts. And they had 30 cities, which are called Havoth-Jair unto this day, which are in the land of Gilead. So again, we see the description of these men who were influential, powerful. They, they ruled over cities. They rode asses' colts. Again, in Judges chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, a Pirathonite judged Israel. And he had 40 sons and 30 nephews that rode on three score and ten ass colts. And he judged Israel eight years. So once again, the idea, the implication of them riding on ass colts is that they were men in peacetime after having conquered who were influential men. And this is, this is what we see all throughout uh, this sort of symbolic idea of riding an ass's colt is the idea of a conquering king, a man of influence, a man of power who is now um, living in that power, in that influence. And that was the picture of the conquering king, the Messiah, who would come. So it is that Messiah would come in the same stately manner riding the foal of an ass into the city in declaration of his authority over God's people. And that's what's happening today in Luke. 
That's what we're reading about today. And they all knew it. This is probably why when they, brought, when they went to get this ass's colt, these two disciples, and said, the Lord has need of him, everyone went, probably just went, oh, it's happening. That's what's happening. The disciples knew what was happening. They knew why this, this, this donkey was needed. This is about to happen. He is about to ride down to Jerusalem in fulfillment of this prophecy, Zechariah 9.9. So this is a major event. Really, it is. So we continue in the text, verses 35 and 36. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon, and as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. So the disciples put their garments upon the colt as Jesus sits upon it. Then as the colt rides, they spread their clothes along the way. The, the nearest thing we would liken this unto is the picture of, of a carpet being rolled out, right? Rolling out the red carpet. That was kind of what was happening here. Uh, in anticipation of the, uh, the arrival of one whom you would desire to honor. Whether that's uh, the rolling out of the carpet that sometimes you see at a wedding, right? So everybody will be doing their thing and then right before the bride comes down, they roll out the carpet and then never works and they're always getting it goofed up and they're bonking into people in seats and stuff and it's just always a, a big difficult thing in the middle of a wedding to have these people try to roll this carpet down you know that sort of a thing but 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 it's a tradition that says the honorable person is coming we are rolling out the carpet now for them that's the idea and very similar idea here uh, carpets are rolled out for great heads of state you know they're plain lands and you see a red carpet rolled out to the to the plain entrance all of those things and and they did this until Jesus came to the crest of the hill of the Mount of Olives which would descend into the Kidron Valley and then into Jerusalem so it is the text tells us in verses 37 and 38 and when he was come nigh even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying blessed be the king Zechariah 9 9 right the king the king that cometh in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus descends toward Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. The multitude of the disciples, a number which we do not know, begin to rejoice, to praise God. An obvious statement that the Messiah had arrived, an obvious statement that they recognize that he is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 here. And they believe it. They believe this is the king. They believe the king has come. The king of judgment, the king of salvation, the king of Zechariah. And so the people rejoiced. And they cried out, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. The book of Matthew adds Hosanna to that cry. Hosanna is a word that means, O oh, save, O oh, save, O oh, save. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Save us, king. Save us, Messiah. They cried, and I love this, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I love this because it is in Luke that we record, that we have recorded for us the words of the angels on the night of Jesus' birth. As they're speaking to the shepherds that watch their flocks by night, in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the angels cried this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That was what they cried 33 years earlier, the angels cried to those shepherds that watched their flocks outside of Bethlehem. And 33 years later, as Jesus is ascending six days before his death, his disciples are crying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven 
and glory in the highest. Peace on earth, 33 years earlier. Now, peace in heaven. That this was the king of heaven and earth. And I love that Luke records this in such a specific way. And so we read as we continue in verses 37 and 38. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples... Uh, excuse me, I've already read that. I won't read it again. Uh, so this was their cry on that day. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest, unto the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. But what's interesting about this is we continue to read the text. And we know this, if you've ever read the Bible before, is that as a whole, it's not meant to be at this time, is it? Jesus proclaimed his kingdom, but as we considered last week, um, there's a lot of disgruntled citizens, not just willing servants that are around in Israel. They would not recognize his right to rule. And it was for this reason that Jesus would need to depart, that he would depart from them before receiving for himself a kingdom. And then he'd have to return again with that authority. Indeed, the kingdom had come, but it was about to be rejected this first time around. It would need to come again under new circumstances when the hearts of God's people, when the hearts of God's elect nation of Israel would finally be ready to receive their king. And so in the midst of this cry of peace in heaven, in the midst of this cry of glory to God in the highest, in the midst of this exciting moment for the disciples of the king, this Zechariah 9-9 fulfilling moment, we have a contrast between those servants, that small group crying, Hosanna, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, blessed be the king, and another group of people. And we read of them in verse 39. The Bible says this, And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. It's important for us to understand that what we're describing here, what, what we would often call the triumphal entry, was not a national reception. This was not the entire city of Jerusalem crying out for Jesus. This was not all of Israel gathering to see their king. There was a group of disciples crying, Hosanna, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. But this was not the whole nation. This was not a national reception. It was a localized reception. Those among them who believed, who had received him, rejoiced over him. But don't be fooled into thinking that this reception echoed the general sentiment of the nation or even of the city of Jerusalem. Indeed, much to the contrary, the smaller gathering, maybe not on this day, but as a whole, was the disciples, not the unbelievers and skeptics. So the Pharisees say to Jesus as he rides down the mount, Master, an ironic title of respect and authority for one that he's, they're going to rebuke him for accepting praise. Uh, he says, or they say to him, rebuke thy disciples. Rebuke these that are calling you the king. Rebuke those that are connecting your works to Zechariah 9.9. Rebuke them for daring to imply that you are Messiah. Well, Jesus had stated as much many times. In fact, it was Jesus that said, go get the donkey for me. Jesus, we know what Jesus is claiming. Everyone knows what Jesus is claiming. He's not going to rebuke his disciples for this. 
So Jesus responds in verse 40. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these stones, or if these, if these should hold their peace, excuse me, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus says, if these disciples of mine would stop proclaiming my right as king, my authority, if they would stop proclaiming my glory, the stones around you would start to cry out. All creation would pick up in the absence of man if there was none left to declare his praises. All of creation would rise to praise the creator if the pinnacle of the glory of God's creation, man, in a misguided and rebellious fervor, sought to withhold from their creator the worth that is due unto his name. Praise unto God is not simply the choice of his creation. It is the compulsion of his creation. Praise is not simply the choice of God's creation. It is the compulsion of God's creation. And by the way, it's the compulsion of this creation. Not just the compulsion of the inanimate creation. It is, the, it is etched into the heart of man to praise his creator. Which is why so many men and women are so unhappy today. Because they are shaking the fist at the one that their very heart yearns to praise. It is written into the heart of man. It is built. Now, rebellion is written into our hearts as well, is it not? It is. But it is built into his creation and essential that it's in the very fiber of the created order. To that extent, were the princes of God's creation, mankind himself, to fail in their privilege and duty to extol the merits and the glories of their creator, of their Lord and their king, the lesser elements of said creation would be compelled to fill the void. Now it is that we have already on a small scale considered the contrast between those disciples who cried out rejoicing in the identity of Jesus as their king and those Pharisees who found this declaration to be utterly offensive to them. But the problem was much larger than those few Pharisees. And I've alluded to that already. And we'll see that, however, as we continue. In verses 41 and 42, the Bible says this. And when he was come near, that would be to the city, and beheld the city, and wept over it, saying, and he's saying this to the city, rhetorically, of course. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the thing which belong, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Jesus finishes his trek through his disciples and he stops to look over the city. Again, I, I would encourage you to get online at some point. I should have put one up on the screen. A picture of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It, it's a really a beautiful panorama. And on this day, Jesus looks over that landscape and he weeps for that city. And he says, this was your day. This was Zechariah 9.9. And you have missed it. And if only you knew what you lost on this day. If only you knew, at least on this thy day, the things which belong to your peace. If you knew the peace that you could have had on this day, if only you had received your king. But now they're hid from you. If they had only known what the day of his entry into the city might have looked like had they accepted him. 
If they had only responded properly to the gospel of the kingdom that had been preached from his mouth, if they had only accepted the signs of the kingdom which had proceeded from his power, if they had only submitted themselves to his divine identity, if they only knew the things which belonged to their peace, if only they had accepted peace on Messiah's terms. They wanted a political overthrow. They needed a spiritual restoration. They wanted justice, but they wanted it without salvation, which they to this day believe they do not need. These things were hid from their eyes through false teaching. These things were hid from their eyes through pride. These things were hid from their eyes through distractions. And now the very opposite of peace would be upon them. So Jesus goes on to say, verses 43 and 44, For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. There's debate, and I'm going to give my opinion here. But I honestly do believe that Jesus' first advent was a legitimate offer. Now, we don't know how that all would have played out if they'd have accepted their king. Of course, Jesus would have still had to have died, right? But because he has to die. And it's within the sovereignty of God that he sent Jesus when he did and he knew that Israel would reject. And obviously, it's all in the plan. We read about that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But this was, I believe, a, a legitimate offer that they legitimately rejected that they could have had peace. And by rejecting it, Jesus says, now you will know some suffering that you can't even comprehend. You will know suffering like you've never understood before. Jesus had made this promise before that the days would come when the city would be torn down, that not one stone would lay upon another. We, we find this recorded in Matthew 24. This event on the short term, the first uh, of these events uh, of their, their suffering would take place in 70 AD. That's really when this, this prophecy of Jesus is fulfilled. The Roman Empire had had enough with Jewish rebellion in 70 AD, some 40 years after Jesus' death. So they besiege the city. They'll surround the city on every side. They will eventually destroy the city. They will tear it down brick from brick. They will burn it to the ground. And that city would remain non-existent until its miraculous rebuild commenced in 1967. Of course, Israel became a nation again in 1948, but it was in 1967 that the city truly began to be rebuilt. Notice why this would become upon them. Jesus says it's, it has come upon you because you did not identify the time of your visitation. When I came, you didn't notice me. When they, their Messiah came, they rejected him. When their king of peace and justice arrived, riding as Zechariah promised on an ass's colt, they wanted something different because this Messiah wasn't the king that they were expecting. He didn't fit their mold. He asked for humility and repentance as a condition of glory and peace, and they were not willing to give it. They weren't watching. They weren't waiting. They weren't looking for God's king. They were looking for their king, not God's king. They were looking for the king that fitted their image, that they had erected, the God of their image, not the God of his own. 
So this Messiah came and went. He showed himself to them. He begged them to listen, but they would not. It was six chapters ago that Jesus said the words as he looked upon the city. Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent to, unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, but ye would not, but you were not willing. God was willing. They were not. How often would God have gathered them, but they were stubborn. They were obstinate. They were self-focused. They were rebellious. They were convinced of their own way. They would not have the salvation offered unto them. If only they had known the peace that God had reserved for them on that day, if only they knew what they were missing, they never would have rejected the divine peacemaker. But they missed it. Not because God had not made it clear, but because their hearts were hardened. Though hindsight is 2020, foresight is about 22 million, right? So often we look back with regrets. But that never really convinces us that we should look forward with faith. We still sometimes have to learn the hard way. So Jesus did not enter into the city to the praises of the entire city. He did not enter into the city to a group of humble, repentant people ready to receive their king. Instead, Jesus was received by a group of disciples crying, Hosanna, blessed is the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. But as a whole, the city, convinced of its own importance and self-righteousness, disregarded his entrance. To this end, we read in verses 45 and 46, And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Far from coming into a city on its knees to receive their Lord, the first thing Jesus has to do when he gets into the city is cast out those who are blaspheming his name. In his name. Jesus goes into the temple complex and casts out those who are buying and selling. Uh, Indeed, commerce was an important thing, especially around the Feast of Passover. But to allow that commerce to find its way onto the temple grounds, into the temple complex, the mixing of the spiritual and the carnal in such a blatant way, particularly for them to do unjust weights and measures as would often happen in that time, taking advantage of people who would come as always happens. During, uh, dur- during a time of, of, of a great event, there's always uh, prices rise, right? I can imagine, you know, the Super Bowl's coming up in a few weeks and it's here in Minneapolis this year. I've already heard that prices are skyrocketing for everything, right? Not just tickets, obviously, but for, for parking, for, for everything. It's, it's, it's skyrocketing. Why? Because people will pay it. This was the idea, right? It's the Passover that's coming up. People need their lambs. People need their doves. People need their their things. And not only are they buying and selling on the temple grounds, but the prices are rising, right? This is a carnal thing that has no place in the house of God. It's the mixing of the spiritual and the carnal in a blatant way, and it's blasphemous to God. The temple was to operate separated from considerations of the carnal and the profane, The temple was to be a place of spiritual refuge, unencumbered by 
the necessary yet deeply fallen elements of economics and commercial considerations. Indeed, commerce and economics, amusements, money, power, politics, religion, none of these are inherently wrong, but they're so very inferior to the realities of the spiritual and often serve to distract from or to, compl- or to compete with the spiritual. To invite those onto the temple grounds was, in Christ's eyes and quite regularly as seen in the scriptures, blasphemous. The house of prayer had become a den of thieves. So Jesus cast them out in his righteous zeal, not the first time by any means. He cast money changers and he cast those doing commerce out of the temple grounds. And we read finally in verses 47 and 48. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Jesus is now six days out from his crucifixion. Daily he would go to the temple and he would teach the people. And as he ministered in the temple, the leaders of the city, the chief priests, the scribes, the chiefs of the people were seeking how he might be destroyed. We're seeking how they might destroy him. The man in whom is no guile, who was teaching the people while guile filled the hearts of those who had made him their enemies. But they could find no reason to accuse him, and indeed they're going to look for it. And the common people around the temple, they were very attentive to him. His disciples had followed him. They were still listening to him. People there were very curious at his teachings, for as we know from scriptures, he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. And at this point in our text, we have five chapters left in the book of Luke, chapters 20 to 24. Those five chapters will tell us of the next 49 days of history. The six days leading up to Jesus' death on the cross, three days in the tomb, These nine days will be the focus of Luke 20, 21, 22, and 23. Nine days for those four chapters. The 40 days after the resurrection where Jesus walked upon the earth before ascending bodily into heaven will be the focus of Luke 24. And so that's where where we'll find ourselves for the next while. We'll find ourselves in particularly these nine days between Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem casting out the people out of the temple that were were buying and selling, the triumphal entry, and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So that's what we have to look forward to. But for today, I'd like us to take some things with us. We've learned some important lessons already. Uh, I I consider talking about the idea of uh, of mixing the carnal and the spiritual, and that's a lesson which uh, is indeed important. I did not choose to go in that direction this evening in our application. I'd really, and for this this reason, I really want to focus in on this concept When Jesus looks at the city and says, if only they knew the things which belong to their peace. Jesus' cry in these final verses is a prophetic one. He, in his wisdom and in his foreknowledge, is looking into the future and considering the sorrow that will befall this once great city of Jerusalem. He's looking into the future and he sees the fall to Rome in 70 A.D., No doubt he's looking into the future and as was prophesied, he is looking toward the suffering of the Jewish people throughout the rest of history. Whether we want to talk about the suffering of of the Jewish people that would come as they scatter and the anti-Semitism that would dog them all the way. 
up through what we know of in, in, in Nazi Germany and, and the concentration camps and the, the attempt to destroy the Jewish people, which is not the first time in, the, in history and won't be the last time that that will happen, all the way up to Antichrist and the tremendous suffering of the people of Israel in that time, the seven years of, of tribulation, the time which Jesus called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus is looking at this nation, considering the sorrow that will befall this city and these people. And he is made sorrowful by the reality that it didn't have to be that way. They did not know the peace that God had desired for them, but that they would not in that generation obtain. If we may put it in most simple terms, Jesus is looking at this city with sorrow in his eyes saying, you don't even know, you don't even understand what you'll be missing, what you've rejected. And I'd like for us to turn our minds toward those who are around us with this same perspective this evening. We interact with people all over this area. You interact with friends, with coworkers, uh, people in church, people out of church, people at the store, neighbors. And these dear men and women don't know what belongs unto their peace. They do not understand what they are missing. They have no idea the peace and the joy that could be theirs. They have no idea what God has provisioned for them in Christ. You say, well, maybe they do know. Maybe I've told them the gospel, but they haven't tasted it. Jesus had told them these things as well, but they have not tasted it. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That God desires all men to be saved is stated explicitly in the Bible. Indeed, I'm, I'm so looking forward to actually getting into Revelation in our morning service. I'm, I'm, I'm laying the foundation now, but when we get there, I'm excited to get to Revelation 22, uh, where the, some of the final words in our Bible are these. Revelation 22:17, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. I, I love this verse. The Spirit, the bride, say, come. Let him that heareth say, come. In other words, let those who have heard the message tell the message. Let those that are then thirsty come. And whosoever will, let him come. If you will. Jesus looked at the city and he said, if only they knew what had been their peace. In Luke's, uh, uh, earlier in Luke, Jesus lamented, if only the city had come to me, but they would not. If only men knew the things which belonged to their peace. But in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he says, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You know, Jesus ministered to a people for three years, and we recall that it is at the end of that three years that Jesus now speaks. Their rejection was not for lack of telling. Their rejection of him was not for lack of signs and wonders. Their rejection of him was for lack of faith. And we know that without faith it is impossible to please him. We've covered it before. Let me mention it again. Hebrews eleven six, But without faith, it is impossible 
to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith pleases God. And faith pleases God because it is a determined exercise of an autonomous will to respond to God's claims. Faith regards a God who has asked for us to yield our right to see ourselves as our own God. And in reward for us yielding our right to see ourselves as our own God, he promises us glory and favor in his kingdom. Jesus spent the years of his life proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to offer a kingdom, but a kingdom obtainable only as the reward of faith. It was not a blind faith, was it? He showed himself through signs of wonder. He showed the signs of the kingdom. He healed the sick. He healed the lame. He forgave sinners. They had plenty of reasons to believe him. But the thing about faith is that faith is not so much about all of the reasons to believe. Faith is more about getting over the reasons not to believe. Faith is not so much about looking at things and saying, these are all the reasons why I should believe. Faith is looking at all of the things that would commend themselves against it and saying, and yet I still do believe. Faith in God promises is not unreasonable. Faith is not irrational. But it does require a decisive act of the will whereby a man has to make a choice between two things of which it is impossible for him to have both. A choice between God's promises and his own self-righteousness. A choice between God's ideology and his own ambition. A choice between God's authority and his own authority. Jesus came with the offer of the kingdom of which he had promised this people for a thousand years through the law and the prophets. But when the time came, they lacked the faith necessary to receive it. They wanted the kingdom, but they wanted the kingdom without losing their self-righteousness. They wanted the kingdom without yielding their own ambitions. They wanted the kingdom without releasing their own authority. And simply put, faith does not work this way, does it? Faith does not work this way. Indeed, faith cannot work this way. Faith demands a yieldedness. And this applies across the board. In order to be saved, a man must exercise faith. Repentance of dead works and faith towards God, Hebrews 6 verse 1 tells us. In order to be in fellowship, a man must have faith. He must confess his sin, yield his perception of his own thoughts and actions to God's perception of his thoughts and actions, yield his right to be right to God's right to be right. In order to be used, a man must walk in the Spirit, yield his right to be led by his own mind, to be led by his own heart, to be led by his own ideas, and instead follow the, the mind of the Spirit, the will of the Spirit, the ideas of the Spirit of God. In every aspect of life, faith is what pleases God. Those, there are those whom you will come across in this life who, like the city of Jerusalem, in the time of Christ, have had the chance to hear have had the chance to know, but they have not received. And yet, to whatever degree you and I can look at those around us and echo the words of Jesus' sorrow, to whatever degree we can look at our family member or our friend or our neighbor and say, if only they truly knew the things which belong to their peace. Brethren, let it never be said that their lack of knowledge regarding the blessings of peace was for lack of our telling them.
Let it never be said that the lack of knowledge among our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones was because we chose not to tell them the things that belong to their peace. As Jesus looked at Jerusalem that day, their rejection was not for his lack of telling. Now, it did not change the fact that they rejected him because mankind has a free will. But let it never be said that the reason why they have not accepted is because we did not tell them what belonged unto their peace or because our lives did not reflect unto them what belongs unto their peace. A moment ago, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. And we might be tempted by this to then, to, to then believe or to assert that belief is outside of man's control. That it is Satan's fault that people aren't getting saved and that people have no means by which to remove the blinders that Satan has put over them. But this is not what the Bible is saying. Consider the context there in 2 Corinthians as we read. The Bible says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, we have renou- uh, we have re- uh, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom... The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who hath commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined it in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What I love about digging into this context here is that as Paul talks about the God of this world having blinded the minds of them which believe not, he's using this as an exhortation to share the gospel. Not saying there's nothing you can do about it. Far from being fatalistically minded in this. By the way, it's it's 2 Corinthians 4. It says 2 Corinthians 4 here. I've been saying 2 Corinthians 2. It is 2 Corinthians 4. My apologies for that. Far from being fatalistically minded here that Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers and there's nothing we can do about it and, and, and we're in trouble here, Paul states rather that the solution to the blinded minds of unbelievers is the gospel that has been shined in our hearts. That the solution is that we would shine the gospel to others and then the Spirit of God can open their eyes. As it is... This shine of the gospel shined into our hearts, so too we are, to, we are called to shine it into others' hearts. They remain blinded foremost because the gospel is hid. And if the gospel is manifest, they remain in their darkness only because they have chosen to reject it. They are not in darkness because they do not know at that point. They are in darkness because they will not believe. But if only once men and women could know the peace of God that belonged unto them through Christ, if only men could understand the love that God has in his heart for them, if only men could comprehend the joys that come through faith, as we close today, I'd like us to turn our hearts more inward. Most of us here are believers. The first exhortation was an exhortation to live out the gospel. 
I have on very many occasions in the book of Luke made personal appeals to faith. I've exhorted on any number of occasions for us as believers to take the next step to yield any unyielded elements in our lives. We've spoken many times about how faith precedes blessing and that we may never know all of the blessings that God had in store for us because we failed to obtain them by faith. But let us this evening just once again make our spirits a blank canvas for the Holy Spirit to do His work. You have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are in church. You're learning of Him. But is there something missing? Is there something lacking? Are there things left unsaid, things left undone, things left unyielded? You go home and you interact with your family. You go home and you interact with your husband, with your children, with your parents. You go home and it's not peace. It's not joy. It's not what it's designed to be. Is there a closet in your life which is off limits to the Lord? God, no, I I want that. I have to have that. That is mine. Are there elements of your life where faith just simply is not touching right now? Where you're in control, where you demand control, where you demand your way, where you demand your priorities? Christian, if only you, you knew the things which belong to your peace. If only you would yield, finally give up, finally give in. If only you would trust and obey. If only you would take the next step. Look, it's not easy. It's not easy. My girls and I went ice skating this last week. And as we went ice skating, um, we've got little skates for them. And they're learning how to ice skate right now. Benjamin had a, had a, had a little pair as well. All, all of my kids were ice skating. Uh, all of the, not, not a Renee, she wasn't ice skating. Uh, she's, she's still working on walking. And they look at dad and, and mom, who are, and mom wasn't ice skating on this day, but, but we're both proficient ice skaters. And uh, they say, how did you get there? We want to be there too. And of course, as with many things in life, you look at your children and you say, you have to practice. You have to put in the effort. You have to put in the time. Things don't just come, right? You have to practice. The, the, the concert pianist did not just wake up one day and, and bang out a concerto. It, do, it does not work that way. There are people that are naturally gifted and others that are less naturally gifted, but it's always practice. It's always work. It's always effort. It's always time. It's always devotion. It's always priorities, right? It's always priorities. Listen, Christian, if you want peace in your life, you have to get there God's way. If you want joy in your life, you have to get there God's way. If you want the things that, are struggle, that you're struggling with, the things that are making you unhappy, look, it's not, it's not God's will for you to be there. It's not God's will for you to be angry. It's not God's will for you to be frustrated. It's not God's will for you to live in that. It's not God's will for you to live lacking joy. It's not God's will for you to live in depression. It's not God's will for you to live in anxiety. Those are not the things which belong to your peace. 
That is not why Christ died. And Christ died to deliver you from those things. But look, you got to do it his way. We look at the master and we say, Master, silence your disciples. Because we want it our way. We want the king on our terms. It doesn't work that way. It cannot work that way. We have to do it on his terms. Yes, but, but what am I giving up? But, but you don't understand what I have to give up. You don't understand what I have to deal with. You don't understand that person. You don't understand that situation. If I give even an inch, then I'm going to lose. No, you're not. You think you are. Your heart's telling you you are. Your heart's telling you that it's not in your best interest. Your heart's telling you that if you give up your anger, if you give up your frustration, if you give up your, your conflict, if you give up those things, if you give up your, your, the, that element of the world that has found its way in you, that you're going to be unhappy, that you're going to lose something. But you know that's not true if you've read your Bible. It's just a matter of do you trust your king? And if only we knew what belonged into our peace. But it's not just going to come. You're not just going to put those spiritual ice skates on the first time and start doing grand, glorious things on them. You're going to have to do it the way everything is done. Submission, yieldedness, time, effort, obedience. What's left unyielded? Look back in your life. Think back to those moments of faith decisions. Imagine what life might have been like had you not taken that step of faith. Whatever it was. Maybe you think back to your salvation. Maybe you think back to that seminal moment where you made a decision to yield something to God and it was a hard decision and you wrestled, but, but, but the Lord finally won and the peace and the rest and the contentment and the joy and the blessing that came afterwards. And here you are and you've still got a closet and it's closed and you're standing in front of it like this saying, Jesus, this one's not for you because you're convinced that that closet is your happiness. And Jesus is looking at you saying, if only you knew the things that belonged unto your peace that are lacking because of that very closet, because of those very things, because of that lack of submission to me. Would to God our successes of the past would make us long for more. Would to God that on that day the miracles that Jesus had performed for three years would have caused the city to so crave for more of the evidences of the kingdom that they said, I don't get it. I don't get the king. I don't understand how he come in this fashion, but I'm going to receive him because I want more of that. Would to God that when they saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they would have said, I don't understand this king. I don't understand his teaching. I don't get how that's going to merge with everything else I know from scripture, but I want more of that. Would to God we would on this day say, you know what? I don't get it. I don't get how these actions, which even seem to be to my detriment, giving up those things that I love so much or yielding that thing that I've been holding on to for years, I don't get how that can make me happier, but I know what I've seen in the past and I want more of that. And so we yield it in faith, believing that he that is faithful will do it. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him.
Don't allow the cares of this world to cloud the zeal for your knowledge of God. Don't allow the things of this life to dupe you into yielding the things which belong to your peace for the things that really don't. Nothing in this life is worth that. No material thing, no relationship is worth that. It is for us to know the things which belong to our peace. Jesus died to secure it for us. May God help us to know them by faith.